Well, good morning and welcome again. It's great to be with you in this way. Right now, we are filming this at the Chatswood Club, which is the venue that we're actually going to be meeting at for our Regather Sunday next week on November 7th. I'm really excited to be together. And it's a great venue, by the way. I mean, there's underground parking. There's loads of street parking as well. It's a one-minute walk from the train station. Lots of natural light in here as well. Some extra rooms for kids. We're going to be really comfortable here. I look forward to gathering with you on November 7th. And I'm really excited about being able to be together on November 7th. But if I'm honest, I'm also a little bit daunted as well. You might be surprised by that. You might think, James, why are you daunted? <laughs> Aren't you like really expecting, really excited to be able to be back together? Like this is what we've been hoping and waiting for for over a hundred days of lockdown. And whilst that might be true, I think if we were just any old social club looking to get back together in person, then sure, yeah, well, like why wouldn't I be only excited? But if we are the people of God who are bent on progressing the kingdom of God and taking ground that the enemy currently occupies and seeing lives and eternities turned around, seeing broken people made whole and seeing our culture shaped and changed, then like we can expect a bit of opposition along the way as well. And maybe that's what I feel a little bit daunted by. You know, but actually, like what's worse than being, in a sense, openly criticized is when people just don't really even care what it is we are on about or what we believe. I mean, I, you know, there's plenty of people around who don't openly hate Jesus and his church or openly attack Jesus and his church or openly criticize Jesus and his church. I mean, plenty of people don't anything Jesus and his church. They just don't really care. And, and, and you might be very like acutely aware of this, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, like we're very much in the minority nowadays. And like we're increasingly irrelevant in an increasingly secular world. Like has there ever been a time like this where Christians are in such a minority and where the message of the gospel is like seemingly irrelevant to the world around it? Well, when Paul arrived on the scene in Ephesus in 53 AD, I think he probably would have felt similar to what we might be feeling. You know, he was arriving in a context where he was very much in the minority and where this little seed of the gospel, which he came to bring into that city, kind of seemed irrelevant to what was going on around him. You know, there are plenty of things about that like, impressive, proud city of Ephesus that might have seemed intimidating or perhaps even a little daunting for him. I mean, it was very much, Ephesus was like the, the trade center of uh, Asia at the time. Actually, the Roman traveler Strabo said this. He said, the city, because of its advantageous situation, grows daily and is the largest emporium in all of Asia. And then Tipperer of Sidon talked about the great temple of Ephesus. And he, and he said that actually, like comparing the great temple to the pyramids of Giza, he said like the great temple overshadowed the pyramids of Giza entirely. He said, those other marvels have lost their brilliance. As I said, look, apart from Mount Olympus, the sun has never gazed on anything so grand as that temple. And so like gathering a church in Ephesus was going to be hard for Paul. If I compare that to what we are doing, gathering a church here in the heart of Chatswood, in, in the shadow of the industry that is around us and, and temples that are built to the worship of, of money and gratification is going to be hard. You might even say daunting. 
And in this kind of environment, can the church really compete, as it were? Can church for the city really compete? Well, against all the odds, a substantial church was built in Ephesus in only a few years before Paul moved on from that city. Because here's the thing, I truly believe actually the gospel thrives and in a sense the church is at its best amidst persecution. Think about in Acts 7 when uh, Stephen was devastatingly stoned and the disciples scattered through all around the neighboring lands. Well, actually, those disciples who were scattered began befriending their neighbors, creating Christian communities. The gospel spread, and that was like the first wave of church planning into the nations. Think even about Jesus' death on the cross, like his crucifixion at the very moment that the enemy thought that he had won, where darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. That actually at the very moment that the enemy thought that he had won, actually the entire battle was lost. Now, Open Doors, who are an organization who serve persecuted Christians all around the world, recently said that it is reasonable to call Christianity the world's most severely persecuted religion. To the CEO of that organization, David Curry, uh, said this. He said, the number of God's people who are suffering should mean that the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith and turning away from another, one another. But that's not what is happening. Instead, in living color, we're seeing the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah come to life. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In the midst of intense persecution, the gospel is thriving and the church of Jesus Christ is advancing. Here here are the top five countries where Christianity is growing faster than anywhere in the world. Listen to this. Nepal, China, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Do you want to hear the next five countries where Christianity is growing faster than anywhere else in the world? They are Oman, Yemen, Mongolia, Bahrain, and Benin. Some of the countries where Christians experience the most persecution in the world are also the countries where Christianity is growing faster than anywhere else in the world. But back to Ephesus and Paul. After seeing this church grow and thrive in this secular city, Paul then hands over leadership to a group of elders and deacons and continues on a missionary journey where he's eventually imprisoned and he writes a letter back to that church in Ephesus. And that's what has become known to you and I as the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And I can imagine the kind of pressure that that newly appointed leadership team would have felt as they waved goodbye to Paul. I can imagine how daunted they may have felt as they considered the the scale and the scope of the ministry that they were called to continue on with. So so when Paul sends a letter to them, he's not just writing like abstract theology to them. He knows the pressure. He knows how daunting uh, the scale and the scope of the mission is for them. And he's writing intensely practical things to them about how to cope in the face of that overwhelming pressure. And in the middle of that letter, he paints like this, this, this picture of the church, this vision of the church that is as beautiful and as compelling as it is effective. 
And we're about to gather in person again, in 3D, as somebody described it to me this week, not only on screens, but in three dimensions. And you might feel excited about that, like I am. But like me, you almost, you also might feel a little daunted by that. Well, what is Paul's words to us, the church here in Sydney, Australia? Ephesians 4 verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Like we attain unity by maintaining the unity that Christ has already won for us. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Earlier in that letter, Paul has said that they are one new man in Christ. That's what Jesus has made us, one new man in Christ. But then he changes tack here. He says in verse 7, but to each one, now he's talking individually, not corporately, to each one of us, grace has been given just as Christ apportioned it. This is what it says When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Skip to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip people for works of service. Not to do all the works of service, but to equip people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, become a mature body, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the head of the church. For him, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I love how the New Living Translation puts that final verse. It says this, He, that's Jesus, makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work and helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Healthy and growing and full of love. I read in a commentary earlier this week that actually uh, no passage in all of Scripture, Scripture it said, is more descriptive of the church in action than these 16 verses in Ephesians for healthy, growing, and full of love. It's a picture of like a mature body, of of a mature church, a church that is speaking the truth in love, a a church that's building itself up in love, a church where every member is serving uh, the others, a a church where we're all growing in our Christ-likeness and learning to stand, form, and to maintain the unity that we have already attained. And we could talk for weeks about what it looks like to be healthy and growing and full of love. I'm just going to touch on a few things here today that hopefully um, captivate you, encourage you, inspire you as we look to regather as a church community. And as I've let these words marinate, I read this passage a while back and that verse gripped me about being healthy, growing and full of love. I've reflected on the fact that like these three things are are kind of symbiotic, like they feed each other and and they result from each other. So if we're healthy, we're also growing and full of love. And if we're full of love, we're also healthy and growing. If we're growing, we're also full of love and healthy. They kind of relate together. They feed each other and they result from each other. So we're going to look at these three things. We're going to start off with growing. 
And I can hear what some of you might be thinking right now. You might be thinking, but hang on, James, I can abide the fact that healthy churches grow, but not all growing churches are healthy. Like there are plenty of cases where there is disharmony, disunity, dysfunction and unhealthy practices in churches that are still growing in number. And I'd say like, absolutely, yes, I understand that. The growth, though, that is talked about in these verses has primarily to do with growth in maturity. Having said that, though, I think that actually Scripture is full of encouragement for us that God wants us to grow in fruitfulness as well. He wants to grow, us to grow in that sort of way. Like in spite of like the daunting task of being a church for a city that like increasingly doesn't really care for us, I still truly believe that God has good things in store for us and that that's not just wishful thinking. I truly believe that He has more in store for us. I believe that He's spoken to us. I believe that His hand is on us. I believe that He is at work within us. I truly believe those things. As I look back to his faithfulness over recent seasons for us, like I, I'm amazed at how he's carried us and he's sustained us through some of the most challenging times in all of human history. I mean, some challenges and crises of our own making, but then like the challenges and crises of a, of a global pandemic and of lockdowns and of restrictions and of, and of leaders moving on and of venue unavailability. Like it has been a challenging time, but what has been proven through this whole season is that he who began a good work will be faithful to see it through to completion. I truly believe these things that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I truly believe that. I truly believe that his kingdom is coming and it has already come. I truly believe that he is building his church and nothing will stand against it. And I truly believe that he who began a good work will be faithful to see it through to completion. I truly believe these things. Years ago, I caught up with uh, another local church leader because I'd heard some incredible things about what was happening in their church. I wanted to learn from them and be encouraged, honestly, by them. And so I sat down and in the hour that this guy graciously gave me, I asked him a bunch of questions. And we got to the end of that time. And just as I went up to pay for coffee, he said, James, just before you get up, can I ask you one question? And he said this, he said, in an age of celebrity pastors and podcasting and YouTube and social media and all that kind of stuff, if God calls you to faithfully lead a congregation of 60 people for the rest of your life, will that be enough for you? It was a great question. Like it made me check my heart, check my motives, check my pride, check my ego. Like it was a good question, but it also made me think, like, yes, we shouldn't be focused on numbers and on success. But like, nor should we think that being faithfully stagnant is in some way more virtuous. Like God wants us to be fruitful. And so like we do count people, not, not because we're numbers or success driven, but we count people because people count. I truly believe God wants us to be fruitful as individuals and as a church. Actually, the great commission that you and I, and we all carry the call to go into all the world and make disciples is a call to fruitfulness. That's what he wants for us. And we can be confident as we ask him for that, we're asking things in line with his will for us. When we gather together on the first Sunday of every month to pray, we're asking, God, would you help us abide in you that we would bear much fruit? We can be confident we're asking in line with His will. When we pray together next Sunday in this very room, we can be confident when we ask Him for that, we're asking for things that are in His heart for us. So yes, not all growing churches are healthy, but healthy churches do grow. Healthy, growing, full of love. That was growing. 
and healthy churches do grow. But what characterizes a healthy church? Again, like there's lots of things that we could say about this. Let me just hit on a few things that I felt God drop in my spirit uh, this week. Healthy churches, and by extension, healthy small churches, don't stay small forever. Healthy small churches don't stay small forever. It's going to be a challenge for us. And in this season that we've enjoyed like the intimacy and the fellowship of being a small community of believers, it's going to be a challenge for us to stay small in a sense, to grow small, to continue to enjoy the intimacy of that church family as we continue to reach people. Because we're going to have to make space for all kinds of different people from all different parts of this incredible city. And as God has slowly been drawing in people from north, south, east and west around the city for us, we have got a vision to have uh, city groups or, or like house churches, little communities of Christians who are part of Church for the City dotted in every kind of neighborhood and area so that wherever you might live across this great city, you're not far from a community of believers where you can partner with them to grow in your knowledge, love and understanding of of God and where you can genuinely build your life alongside them and where you can genuinely be on mission together in your neighborhood. And so we've got a vision to see the little five city groups and house churches that we have right now to see some of them multiply and to see new groups started for the start of next year. So we've got more information coming out about that, but that's part of our vision to be a church for the city. So Healthy small churches don't stay small forever because they're reaching people and reaching people naturally means growth. And another thing here, like in line with that, is that an outward focused church ultimately creates the healthiest insiders. Let me say that again. An outward focused church ultimately creates the healthiest insiders. And that might seem a bit paradoxical. But if we are truly a mature body of believers, it means that we've taken that great commission to go into all the world to make disciples. We've taken that great commission to heart. So being outward focused is a non-negotiable of being a healthy church. A healthy church also has a healthy pace and rhythm to the lives of the individuals and the lives of the community as well. Will we, will we slow down the pace of life and enjoy being with Jesus and where all our doing for Jesus flows out of that being with him. Like that is the pattern of the Christian life. God initiates and we respond in obedience. And so we can never let our doing for Jesus outrun or exceed our being with him. You know, we want to be a people who live a life worthy of the calling that we receive. We want to be a people who are completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love, where we're making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Remember, attaining the unity by maintaining the unity that we already have, that Jesus has already won for us. Also, like we want to be a healthy church that remembers that ultimately Jesus is the one who is building his church, not us. He is the one who said he would build his church. And, and by his grace, he equips all believers uh, to achieve everything that he has called us to do. It says here in verse 7, But to each one of us, grace has been given just as Christ apportioned it. He apportioned grace to each of us. He, he goes on to say, 
to talk about a, a, a diversity of gifts in verse 11, about the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, who don't just do all the works of the ministry, but they equip people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So a healthy church has healthy leaders who don't monopolize the ministry, but multiply the ministry. We want to see that happen among us. Verse 16 again says, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. That's all of us grows and builds itself up in love as each part, you, me, all of us, as each part does its work. Now, a place where every believer is walking in the authority of Jesus in, in their workplace, in their sporting teams, in their social clubs, in their neighborhoods, in every walk of life. And, and you know this because we've said it and we'll keep saying it. We absolutely believe that every member of the body has got a crucial part to play in God's kingdom purposes. And this is not like just a, a delegation strategy or trying to make my job easier or anything like that. We believe the role of a leader and of leaders is to help people discover their God. God-given gifts and then encourage them and, and empower them to exercise those gifts. And so that's why I want to be like the number one cheerleader among us. I want to be the most encouraging person among us because I want to see you exercising the gifts that God has given you to do it for the good of His bride. And I know like we often think about serving within areas of church life, but perhaps rather than thinking about the gaps that may or may not exist in church life, of which there are plenty though, I wonder if we can start with where has God gifted me and how can I see that gift worked out for his kingdom purposes in any area of life? It's why actually in house churches through the month of November, we're going to be looking at the chapters of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. As we look at the gifts that God has given us, the gifts of the charismata, the, the grace gifts that he's given us and their role and their purpose in the bride. Because we believe that everybody has got a part to play. So church for the city, could we be healthy? Well, we have healthy rhythms and healthy leaders who encourage and empower healthy service, could we be growing, growing in maturity and growing in number as we continue to reach people? Could we be healthy, growing, and could we be full of love? As I think about being full of love, I think about the greatest commands that Jesus gave us. Jesus says in Matthew 22, the first is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Like that's the first command that he gave us. And like, I don't know, like maybe this is just me, but as best as I can understand the Bible, I think the role of every Christian is to encourage every other Christian to know and to love Jesus more. And like, maybe this is just me, but I don't hear a lot of people using the language of like love and affection for Jesus. The kind of language that David and the rest of the psalmists use in the psalm when psalms when they're so captivated by God. Like he is all consuming. He's at the center of their lives. Like you can tell when a husband is absolutely infatuated with their wife. You can tell when kids are like totally, parents are totally doting on their kids. You know who cat people are. You know who dog people are. You know what sporting teams people follow because like it consumes all of their language. It consumes their thoughts. It's what they post on Instagram. It's what they spend their time, their resources and their energy on. We know these things. Could we be a church where we're known for being lovers of Jesus? I spoke to a guy this week 
he's like almost 70 years old and I haven't met his wife and I was asking him, can you tell me a little bit about your wife? And he started describing her and he said, you know, she's really mischievous, my wife. I love that. I love that he described his wife like that. And his face lit up when he was talking about her. Can we be a church when our face lights up when we're talking about Jesus? Jesus goes on talking about these greatest commands. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this, to love your neighbors as yourself. In John 13, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Like, could we be known as a church for the way that we love one another? Like where people would say, you've got to go check out that crowd. You've got to go check out those people. Like the way that they love each other is so remarkable. It's just crazy. The way, like they, 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 the way they love Jesus, the way that they like really seem to genuinely love the city, the way they seem to genuinely love the poor, the way they seem to genuinely love their enemies and they genuinely love each other. Like it is otherworldly. Like I just, you got to check them out. They're crazy. Like I cannot, it is supernatural what's going on there. Could we be a church that is known for those things, to be so full of love, healthy, growing and full of love? final thing I just want to say is this, that actually in saying all of these things, Paul actually in these verses, he takes the pressure off us entirely. Verses 12 to 15, he says actually that Jesus is the head of the church and that as the head of that body, ultimately the responsibility for the health of that body lies with him. He says to us that if we're willing to allow him to fill us with the spirit, to speak the truth in love, then he promises to knit us together. He promises to build us up in love. He promises to enable each part to do its work. He's the one who does those things. Like there, these verses are saying that he is making us into that mature body or that mature man, if you will, which is like a direct correlation with verse uh, chapter 2 when he talks about making us one new man in Christ. What he's saying is, is that the gospel that saved us from sin is the same gospel that saves us from the crushing pressure or feeling daunted by the scale and the scope of the mission that he's called us to. He's got it. It's his church. He is faithful to complete what he has begun. The same God, the same God who has made us church for the city, one new man, one new person, one new body in Christ is the same God who is making us a mature body in Christ as well. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy, is growing and is full of love. God bless. I can't wait to see you in person next week.